0: Thank you for firing up the Sunrise Church podcast. My name is Steve Garcia, and I am the lead pastor at Sunrise. We are a community of Jesus followers from all walks of life, all colors of skin, and all ages. And I hope this message you hear today inspires you to deepen your connection with Christ. Let's dive in. Have you ever misplaced something that is of great value to you? What do you typically do when that happens? I'll never forget when I lost my wedding ring, you know, I got uh, married in the South, and when I was fitted for my ring, I weighed a little more than I do now. Uh, I was eating that fried chicken and drinking that sweet tea and put on a little couple of LBs, Uh, you know, living in the South, hot and humid, my fingers swelled, and so my wedding ring always fit snugly on my finger, but a couple of years into my marriage, my wife and I moved to Ohio, and I started to lose a little bit of weight with those... Long, cold, snowy winters, I didn't have to worry about my fingers swelling up anymore, and all of this resulted in my wedding ring loosening on my finger. And I remember one night, my wife and I were at a date in Applebee's in the middle of an Ohio snowstorm. I remember I parked the car and I came in, and when I took off my glove, my ring came off with it, I think. (laughs) I didn't realize it until I got home. And I thought, oh no, where's my ring? So I'm looking all over the house, checking every pocket of every pair of pants I've ever worn, every coat pocket. Couldn't find it at all. So then I called up the restaurant. Hey, did anybody turn in a ring? I drove to the restaurant, showed up. I'm on my hands and knees under the booth looking around for this ring. I'm looking between couch cushions, going through the lost and found of people's sunglasses and keys and pens and all this stuff. This went on for months. Never found my wedding ring. This one that I wear now is a replacement Bought it in Chinatown in San Francisco for like 20 bucks after my wife haggled down a shop owner who started at like 500, right? Uh, But the point is this, is that when you misplace something that's of great value to you, you don't just shrug your shoulders and go, oh, well, you go looking for it. You've experienced this before. Some of you, you lost your car keys, or maybe you lost something like a passport or, or a really important receipt. What did you do? You tore the house upside down. You sent search parties into the neighborhood. Some of you even resorted to going outside and digging through your own trash. (laughs) Neighbors pull up, don't make eye contact. Those people living next to us, they're strange, right? But here's the thing. When something is of great value to you and it's missing, you're going to go through great lengths to seek it out and find it. And we're in a season right now where we're seeking gifts for people. We're seeking in stores and on aisles and and shelves. We're seeking pages of Amazon. We're spending hours upon hours seeking after that perfect gift. But how many of us have realized the perfect gift is already right here? It's Jesus Christ. And he's not just a plastic figure in your nativity set. He is the living God and the embodiment of a promise that God is gonna save His people. And we will go through all kinds of lengths to find things that are missing, but do we really even seek after Jesus who's right here, right under our noses? Are we seeking after him today? We're continuing in this message series that's all about the prophecies leading up to the birth of Jesus. The the, the night divine when Jesus was born was predicted hundreds and hundreds of years Before it ever happened, the Old Testament prophecies said that Messiah, the chosen one of God, would be born in a very specific way, at a very specific location, under very specific circumstances. And these things were perfectly fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. He's left us a trail of evidence that stretches thousands of years into history so that anybody who wanted to get on this trail would be able to seek and find this Jesus. And so today we are going to be in the New Testament gospel of Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to look at how four different prophecies all converge in one account. So if you have a Bible or a device with a Bible on it, make your way to Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading together in verse 1. Follow along with me. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, I'm willing to guess that most of you have somewhere in your house at least one nativity set on display. Raise your hand if you've got a nativity set on display. Keep your hands up if you have more than one nativity set on display. More than ten. No, I'm just kidding. I'm going to keep counting that. But, you know, all of our nativity sets, they, they're, they're kind of the same. You know, of course, you have baby Jesus in the middle, and he's flanked by Mary and Joseph. You've got some shepherds in there, some animals. Maybe you've got a little angel sitting up on the roof next to the star. And then there's these three little figurines that we just talked about. They're... They all have crowns, they all have gifts in their hand, and they're usually depicted as a white guy, an Asian guy, and a black guy. When a little kid says, who are those? You say, well, those are the three kings, or "The, the three wise men. Our gospel author, Matthew, described them as magi from the east. Magi is where we get our English word, magic. These magi, they have a long history going all the way back to uh, the book of Genesis, but basically what these guys were, were highly educated, highly influential astronomer, astrologers who sometimes dabbled in magic and divination. And the most powerful kings and governments of the world would call upon these magi for guidance and sometimes some divine help. And so these were the magi described who came to visit Jesus. Matthew says they came from the east, that's almost certainly the area of Persia, or as we know it in our modern-day context, Iran. So you ought to ask yourself the question, what are Iranian magi doing looking for a Jewish baby? They're about 1,000 miles away across deserts. Jesus was born in a Jewish region in Israel, Jesus was Jewish, born to a Jewish virgin named Mary, who is engaged to a Jewish man named Joseph. Why are Persian men showing up in Jerusalem? Well, they told us in verse 2. They said, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. What is this mysterious star they're talking about? Well, remember I told you that four different prophecies will get met in this one story, and this is the first one. It's the prophecy of the eastern star. And this goes all the way back into the Old Testament book of Numbers in a story we don't even have, barely have time to get into. It's fascinating if you go back and read it, but basically there's this evil oracle by the name of Balaam who got hired to curse Israel, but God got a hold of him first, and instead of uttering out cursings, he began uttering out blessings, and among them was this in Numbers 24, verse 17. He said, "'I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near.'" A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheph. So, hundreds of years before Magi ever went looking for a star, this prophecy came about and said it's going to rise out of Jacob. Jacob is a descendant in the genealogy of Jesus. It says a scepter will rise out of Israel. A scepter represents a king. This Messiah king will crush the enemies of God for good, which at that time was symbolized by a people group known as Moab. And he said, here's the the, the sign to look for. A star will mark the Messiah's arrival. What did the wise men, the magi say when they arrived in Jerusalem? We saw his star and we've come to worship him. But again, it, it ought to ask the question, what in the world? How, how could Iranian magi have access to Hebrew scriptures? These guys are so far removed culturally speaking, so it ought to ask us to think, okay, is there anything back in history in which Israeli and Iranian cultures would have mixed And as it turns out, there's one massive, well-documented historical event called the Babylonian exile, and it started in 586 BC. And basically, Israel turned their back on God. They went full bore worshiping idols. So God essentially takes his hands off and says, okay, if this is what you want, all yours. And so with God's hand of protection removed, foreign enemies came in and attacked Israel, and the Babylonian Empire destroyed Jerusalem, kidnapped all of its residents, and replanted them in Babylon. They were stripped of their Hebrew names, and they were taught uh, Babylonian customs and indoctrinated with Babylonian religion. But there was a small group of these Jewish people who Kept the faith in a one true God despite being in a culture that tried to beat it out of them. This remnant, this small group of faithful Jewish believers, was led by a young man, a young prophet by the name of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 5 in the Old Testament, there's this terrifying story that takes place where This king of Persia, he's he's, he's throwing this party, everybody's drinking and having a good time when all of a sudden everybody stops and this human hand appears out of nowhere and begins writing this cryptic message on the wall and everybody's face goes white and their jaws drop open. In fact, in our modern day culture, we still have a saying, we say, read the writing on the wall. It means bad news is coming. That's taken out of this story in Daniel chapter 5. So the king is terrified at this supernatural event that's going on. So what does he do? Look at what it says in Daniel 5, verse 7. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So the king had a supernatural problem, so he needed a supernatural solution, and so he turned to the magi. The only problem was that none of them could help. With all of their magic and divination, none of them were able to do anything about this problem, which left the king spiraling in terror and fear until his wife, the queen, spoke up. Verse 11, she said, Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. She was referring to Daniel, who got endowed with special abilities like interpreting dreams and having uh, supernatural insight. Daniel was once the chief of the Magi. So the king called on Daniel, and Daniel delivered. He told the king everything it meant, what the hand was about, what the message was. And so the king came good on his promise. He gave Daniel a purple robe and a gold chain. So now Daniel's looking like a pimp from the 70s. And on top of that, Daniel was promoted to the third highest in command and resumed his role as chief magi. And can't you just picture the other magi coming to Daniel and saying, How'd you do it? We all tried. What's the secret? And I just imagine Daniel gathering all the magi together and saying, let me tell you about a God who is above every other God. And by the way, you guys like stars? You're gonna love this. There's a Hebrew prophecy that says Messiah is coming and the way you'll know is a special star is gonna appear in the sky. And the magi had a reputation for tight record keeping and so they preserved these words of Daniel. And year after year, nothing in the sky. Years turned into centuries, nothing until one night divine, and there it was. And these magi saw it and knew right away that's the star our forefathers told us about. And so they immediately got together their entourage, their big cavalcade, they'd gotten their camels, and they headed a thousand miles due west. To Jerusalem and showed up and said, We're looking for the king of the Jews. And when these guys showed up, it was anything but quiet. They had a whole posse with them, they had big colors and, and they were very loud. And so news spread pretty fast. Let's return to Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. It said, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Yeah, I get that. How would you feel if you were the current king and everybody started asking you where the new king is? It'd be like being the, the owner of your company and all of your employees start talking about the new boss. And you go, What, what, new boss? This is news to me. What, did corporate go above me? Did one of my coworkers plot my demise? Did we get bought out and, and a new management team is coming on? This is how Herod felt. Did, did the king, did the Jews elect a new king? You know, is, is somebody trying to usurp the throne? And so he hears all of us talk about Messiah, and he snaps into action, and he's got to have a plan so that he can hold on to his position of power. Verse 4, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The king had access to the greatest theological minds on the planet, and when he had a question, it was answered instantaneously, as if these guys had the prophecy memorized. And they quoted the prophet Micah from the Old Testament, who said, yep, is coming out of Bethlehem. This is the second of four prophecies being fulfilled in this one story. And so Herod got to thinking, okay, if I give something to the Magi, I can get something from the Magi. I'll point them which city they ought to go looking for Messiah, and in return, I'll have them come back and report to me his exact location so I could kill him and keep the throne. So Herod brokered a backroom deal, and the Magi apparently agreed. Let's pick things up in verse 9. After they had heard the king, the Magi went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was, and when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. So this verse gives us an indication of what kind of star we were dealing with. This wasn't a usual star in that it didn't have a fixed position in the heavens. This star apparently appeared and disappeared and also moved. And it had disappeared at Jerusalem, and they went cold on the trail. And so if they had any doubt that maybe Herod pointed them in the wrong direction toward Bethlehem, that doubt was erased when the star reappeared in Bethlehem and started moving to right above the house where Jesus was. The second of four prophecies fulfilled. Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And it says that when that star reappeared, they were overjoyed. They were beside themselves excited. Like treasure hunters who've been chasing this treasure for so long, they sensed they were nearing the X on the map. Verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. What a scene. These mysterious, influential men from the east who have access to the most powerful kings in the world got on their faces and worshipped Jesus. Jesus. Verse 11 continues. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I need to warn you, I'm about to blow up your nativity sets again. Uh, But let's talk a little bit about these magi. First of all, they weren't a white guy, an Asian guy, and a black guy. They were brown skinned Iranians. And uh, most of us think that they were three kings. They weren't kings. They were magi. They probably lived like kings, but they weren't kings, which stinks because one of my favorite Christmas songs of all time is We Three Kings, which isn't even biblically accurate, but I still like the song, right? And we often assume there's three of them. We don't know that. They presented three gifts, but there could have been 65 magi presenting three gifts. So we don't know if there's three of them or two of them or 80 of them, but what we do know is that the gifts they presented had great significance. Gold. That's what you give to a king. Incense, this represented prayers rising up to God. Myrrh represents death. And as the lyric of We Three Kings, the song goes, that these gifts represented king and God and sacrifice. This was no ordinary child. If this was an ordinary child, the Magi's gifts would have been diapers and baby wipes and a car seat. But instead, they presented gold and incense and myrrh. What a moment. But all the excitement would give way to danger. And the next few verses uh, set off a series of warnings, beginning in verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the Magi returned to their country by another route. So by all intents, they were going to go back to Herod and keep up their end of the deal to give the pinpoint location of Messiah. But through divine intervention, God exposed Herod's evil plan, and so they had to reroute the GPS and find an alternative route back home. And then a warning came to Jesus' parents, verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. This is a part of the Christmas narrative that we often overlook, and that was this, that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus became immigrants. And for those of you with harsh opinions on immigration, let me just remind you that Jesus was an immigrant too. And in the, in the middle of the night, out of fear for their family, they had to get up and go. They faced what millions of people in the world face All the time, every day. In countries like Syria and Venezuela and Nigeria, millions of refugees are doing the same thing under the cover of night, running for their lives to protect their families. In Ukraine alone, some six million Ukrainians, as a result of the Russian invasion, have, have relocated to parts all over Europe. Jesus was the same thing a refugee with his parents. But what's crazy is that they were simple people. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have wealth and resources to be able to just move to a foreign country, much less live there for an extended period of time. Actually, they did. They had money. A lot of it. Because a bunch of mysterious magi just showed up and gifted them very expensive gifts. God used the generosity of the Magi to bankroll this midnight escape for Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. See, when you give to God, you don't always see where your money goes or how it works, but you would always count on this. God is gonna use it to bless someone. And that's what he did with the Magi. And the Magi were able to bless this family so that they could escape and in the process fulfill more prophecy That Messiah would come through Egypt, born in Bethlehem by way of Egypt. Prophecy number three of four fulfilled in this one story. And so how did King Herod react to all of this? Verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. What a horrible and despicable act this was, killing children to and under. You know, sometimes critics look at this particular story and say, well, the Bible can't be true because we don't have a historical record of King Herod doing something like this. Well, here's something important to know about Herod. He was a really bad guy. Other historians of that time reported that Herod had his own wife murdered. And then did the same thing for his three sons. In fact, Herod actually arrested a bunch of innocent Israelites and ordered that they all be put to death on the same day Herod died. That way, on the day of King Herod's death, people would actually be sad. Perhaps the reason why there's no historical record of this killing of children is because this wasn't even the worst thing that Herod did. But yet it happened. And in the process, another prophecy fulfilled. Verse 17. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel was widely regarded as the mother of Israel. Ramah was her burial place not far from Bethlehem. And hundreds of years before this event ever happened, the prophet Jeremiah talked about an event so despicable, it would be as if Rachel was awakened from her grave to mourn with mothers everywhere who lost their little ones. This prophecy was tragically fulfilled through Herod in the days of Jesus. Number four of four, fulfilled. Friends, the the birth of Jesus, the Christmas story, is not just a story in the Bible amongst a bunch of other stories. It has threads all throughout time and history, all throughout the scripture, and it testifies to a God who's bringing stories and fulfilling prophecies in a sovereign way where he pulls it all together so that he could once again prove to us he is a God who keeps his promises that he is come to save people like you and me. And so what does any of this have to do with us right here, right now? Magi chasing a star, an enraged king. What, what What does any of this have to do with us? Well, I think there's some incredible lessons we can learn from both the Magi and from the king. Let me give you a few descriptive words of the Magi and see if we can learn from their example. Here's the first one. The Magi were seeking these guys traveled over 1,000 miles to find Messiah. If you were to fly to that region of the world today and rent a car and drive the same distance they traveled, it would take you 25 hours in a motorized vehicle. Imagine doing that on Camelback, across deserts. When the Magi set out on this journey, that was no small undertaking. They were seeking after God. And they did so, with, they, they acted on limited information. Those guys didn't have access to the scriptures. They, they just had a little bits that were handed down to them, likely by Daniel from way back in the day. But yet, what little they had, they acted on it. And when they showed up in Jerusalem, these guys worked. They didn't find some street side cafe and sip tea. They hit the ground running. They showed up. Hey, where's the king of the Jews? Anyone see the king of the Jews? You there over there. Have you seen the king of the Jews? We followed his star. He's got to be some here, somewhere around here. Somebody please help us. They instantly went to work. And as they neared Bethlehem, they were excited. Matthew says they weren't joyed. They were overjoyed. They started acting like a couple of giddy children about to open gifts on Christmas morning. And these men were self-sacrificing. We already talked about the gifts that they brought, but have you considered how much of their own resources they spent on this journey? The travel, the food, the lodging. This wasn't their job. These guys weren't professional Messiah hunters. They had their own lives, their own families, their own jobs. They sacrificed all of that to travel across a thousand miles of desert to find Jesus. And when they did, they fell before Jesus in worship. Matthew 2.11, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They didn't fall down because they were tired. They didn't fall down before Mary. They didn't fall down before Joseph. They didn't fall down before an angel. They didn't fall down before King Herod. They fell down before Jesus And worshiped him as the Lord of all lords and the King of all kings. These Magi are awesome examples of what you and I should be, especially when you compare them to King Herod. See, the Magi were seeking, whereas King Herod was scheming. When he learned that Messiah was born, he instantly started plotting and scheming and trying to do things to get ahead. You and I do the same thing all the time. We spend so much time on our sinning, more time than we do on actually seeking after God. And this guy was just scheming. I've heard it say that criminals are among the most brilliant people we have on the planet. They're smart, they're resourceful, they're committed, they get the job done. The problem is that they spend their energy on the wrong thing. And if only Herod could have spent the same energy on seeking God as he did scheming against him, he'd have been okay. And he would have gone down in history as a great king and not a wicked one. The Magi acted on limited information. Herod was apathetic on limitless information. He had at his disposal the greatest teachers that the world knew about the Hebrew Scriptures. Those guys were able to give him answers from memory. He had unprecedented access, and yet he did nothing with it. He had all the people who knew the answers. The problem was that nobody were, was applying it. You and I have unprecedented access to God's word. The question is, does God's word have access to us? The Magi worked. Herod waited. These guys traveled a 1,000 plus miles and showed up. And what did Herod do? Hey, you guys go find the, magi- the Messiah. He left this job to a couple of foreigners instead of just going and doing it himself. Bethlehem was in Herod's backyard. And he said to the Magi, eh, That's your job. You and I do the same thing. Instead of, instead of working out our faith, we just sit back and say, uh, It will sort itself out in the end. When has that ever happened? When has your life just sorted itself out? In fact, the opposite happens. Things get worse when we aren't seeking after God. The Magi were excited about Jesus. Herod was disturbed. He was scared because he thought, what's this going to cost me? How many of us make decisions on the exact same basis? Hey, what's this going to cost me? He was unwilling to pay the price, which led him to be... Self-preserving. The Magi were were self-sacrificing. Herod was self-preserving. The Magi were willing to give everything. Herod was willing to give nothing. He had his life carved out. He had it all figured out. It's really hard to seek the most important thing when you think you've already found it. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds their life will lose it and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. What is it that you're holding on to today that's preventing you from receiving Jesus into your life? Open up those hands. Don't try to hold on to your life. Lose it. Surrender it to Jesus. Herod tried to hang on to his, and he lost it. The Magi fell before Jesus. Herod fought against Jesus. And you and I do the same thing, don't we? We rebel against him. We fight against him. We cover up our ears when we should be worshiping him. You know, one of our pastors this past week was sharing with our staff that he and his family went out to do some Christmas shopping. And in this particular outdoor shopping area, over the loudspeakers, they were playing Christmas songs. And the song, O oh Holy Night, started playing in that great lyric, Fall on Your Knees. And he said he's listening to the song playing and just watching the crowds just walking around, not even paying attention to the background music. It was as if he just wanted to yell out, fall on your knees. Jesus is right here in front of us. Do, do any of us see him? Jesus was right under the nose of Herod, like background music. And instead of worshiping Jesus, he tried to kill him. He totally missed it. So when you see these two lists, Magi and Herod, which one best describes your relationship with God? Are you seeking after him or scheming against him? Are you being faithful with, with what you do know of the scriptures? Or are you uncaring with, despite all of the access that you have? Are you working out your faith or are you just waiting for God to do all the work? Are you excited about Jesus or does he disturb you? Are you sacrificing anything for him, or are you just trying to preserve the life that you think you've carved out? And are you falling before Jesus or fighting against him? When you look at those two lists, which one best describes you? You know, the Magi were a living, breathing example of a powerful verse found in Hebrews chapter 11. I want to read it to you, verse six. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The Magi had a thousand reasons to never go seeking after Jesus. They had a thousand reasons to stay at home, a thousand reasons to never poke their nose in somebody else's business, but yet they believed in faith that God was who he said he was, and based on a little bit of information, they stepped out in faith, seeking after Jesus, and he rewarded them. They got to see with their own eyes God in the flesh and have their story forever linked with the birth of Jesus. Are we seeking him? Jesus has left a trail of evidence thousands of years in the making so that anyone who wanted to seek after him would find him. And I wonder how many of us, just like Herod, we got our eyes shut. And I wonder if there's somebody in here who you've never opened your hands and surrendered yourself to this Jesus. Because friends, listen, he wasn't just a baby on a manger in a manger. He was a savior on a cross. The birth of Jesus was the start of his plan to live a perfect life so that he could die in our place, so that we can give him our death, and in exchange, we get his life. Have you ever invited this Jesus into your life? If you've never done that, I want to help you do that today. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. I'll even give you the words to pray, but you have to take them and own them and pray them back to God in faith. But if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus and you sense him knocking on your heart today, let's respond in faith, believing in him and knowing that he will reward those who seek after him. So I want to invite everybody to bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you're ready to invite Jesus into your life, I want you to repeat these words after me in the silence of your own heart Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. Pray right up to heaven. I believe. I believe. I believe you died on a cross for my sins. I ask that you forgive me. I ask that you wash me clean, give me a new heart so that I could follow you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Now, if you're somebody who prayed That prayer today, for the first time, I want to encourage you to tell someone. Those of you watching online, there are links that you could follow, but for those of us in the room, on your program is a little perforated card, and at the bottom of it is a box that says, I said yes. You could just fill that out, check that box, tear off this card, and in just a moment, our ushers will come down the aisles to collect today's offering. You just drop that right in there, and we'll follow up with you and help you get going. Maybe you've already trusted in Jesus, but you're not going anywhere, you're stuck, you're... you're not living for him, and you want to get back on track, here's how we can help you do that. Take your phone right now and text the word next to 909-281-7797. We'll engage with, in a conversation with you to help get you taken that next step. Maybe it's joining a small group or serving at the church. or Maybe you just need somebody to talk to to get your questions answered. Text NEXT to 909-281-7797, or you could stop by our Next Step table out here in the lobby. There's somebody waiting to have a conversation with you as we speak. Friends, at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, it starts with Gentiles leaving their country to seek after Jesus. At the end of Matthew's Gospel is the Great Commission of Jesus sending Jews out of their country to seek after Gentiles. The story of Jesus is not just for Jewish people. It's for Jews and Gentiles alike. That's all of us. Herod completely missed it. Jesus was right under his nose, and he missed it. But wise men still seek him. And so let's take a page from the Magi's book. And this season, let's open our eyes, seek after him, and fall down and worship Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for coming good on your promise and stepping into creation so that you could be one of us, so that you could die for us and save us from our sins. We're so unworthy of this, Lord, but you didn't, you didn't make us have to work our way out of this problem on our own. You provided yourself as the solution, and we say thank you, and we praise you. I'm just curious if there's anybody in here this morning, maybe you've been wandering from the Lord, you haven't been seeking after him, you say, Pastor, I just need some prayer, I need to get back on track with Jesus, would you pray for me, would you just lift your hand now so I could pray for you, I've been off track, I need to get back on, yep, hands all around, lift your hand up Lord, for my brothers and sisters right now, God, I pray that today would be the day they make some changes and get going in the right direction again, back on your trail, back on your path, we pray in Jesus' name. If there's anybody in here who you said, today is the day that I received Jesus into my life, would you lift your hand so that I could pray for you? Just right here in the room, lift it up so I could pray for you right now. Yeah, I see you. I see you. Lord, for these brothers and sisters who today made that decision to receive you into their life, Lord, I pray that today marks the start of something new and beautiful, a new life with you at the center. And Father, as we get ready to give over our gifts of offering, our tithes, our our money, Lord, may we do so with a spirit of worship, believing in faith that you could take these gifts and multiply them and bless others in Jesus' name thank you so much for being a God unlike any other God who ever was in whatever other religions worship. You are a God who came down to us. And we thank you for examples like the Magi who went seeking after you. May we do the same. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. And if you believe in your heart, then somebody say, Amen. amen. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. I wanna encourage you to not just stop here. Maybe you sense God is speaking to you today and wanting you to take that next step. So here's two ways you can do just that. The first is text the word next to the number 909-281-7797. That's 909-281-7797. You'll receive a message back with some ways to help you grow. That may mean joining a small group or finding a place to serve, or just talking with someone one-to-one about your faith. You can also visit the notes for this podcast and follow the links provided. And if you're within driving distance of one of our four physical locations in Banning, Ontario, Rialto, or Victorville, we'd love for you to stop by some time and give us a chance to meet you personally. Again, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon. God bless.